You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right. Good morning, Radiant Church. So good to see all of you here. If you are new with us, my name is Marco, and I am the lead pastor here. And again, thank you for making Radiant a part of your weekend. Hey, quick update. This past weekend, we finally got our new men's fixtures and sinks in. And so, yes, praise God. We can clap our hands. No more 1960s sinks in there. And so I just wanted to celebrate with all of you, and again, thank you for your continued generosity here at Radiant Church. Well, this morning, you guys, we are back in the book of Acts, and this is actually, if you're counting, it's actually week number eight. This is part number eight. We started this series um, actually mid-October, and we hung out in Acts for about two months, and then we went into the Christmas season and, of course, our Sikh season. And so today we are back in the book of Acts, and if you're new with us, let me just catch you up uh, somewhat where we're at. The book of Acts is found in the New Testament, and it is the story and the life of the early church. Now, a guy named Luke is the writer, and Luke is a physician, and he's a bit of a historian as well. And Luke has compiled the account of the early church, the life of the early church. Luke also wrote, you might have guessed it, the Gospel of Luke. And so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were meant to be this sort of two-volume anthology sort of read together on the, or on the story of the early church. Now, some people have called uh, the book of Acts uh, the Acts of the uh, Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is because in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit alive and well in the church. Now, this is a, actually a big deal, a quick theology lesson for you this morning. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, which is God's empowering presence, would only come upon people for a certain time. It was temporary, a temporary moment, maybe for leadership or a specific task. And the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people like kings and prophets and priests. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, this is post-resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, we see and we read about in Luke or in Acts that the Holy Spirit indwells the people of God. And it empowers the people of God. He empowers the people of God to live this overcoming life in Jesus Christ. Now today, we're going to look at two different stories by Luke that Luke talks about. And these two different stories are written back to back. And they're purposefully written this way so that we can see a contrast between these two stories. They have similar language, but they have very different outcomes, okay? We're going to start in Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to move Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4, and then we're going to move to chapter 5. After we look at both stories, I'll pray, and then we'll get on with the rest of our message. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me. We don't have any time to waste. Acts 4.32 
This is what Luke writes. He says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had needs. Everyone was taken care of in the early church. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, let's pause here for just a moment, figure out what's going on here. Luke writes about that believers from time to time, they would have a piece of property, they would have possessions, and in order to help everyone out in the church, at times, they would sell their property, and then they would bring that money to the apostles' feet, and then the apostles would distribute as they saw fit. This way, everyone was taken care of. Now, before you think, oh, was this like socialism or like communism? No, okay? This wasn't that way. This wasn't like a government mandate. This was not forced upon anyone. This was out of their own free will, their own good heart, to what? To take care of other believers. And this is what happens uh, in the early church. The early church took care of one another. And listen, this is an example for all of us this morning. The early church took care of one another, and we should also take care of one another. And let me just tell you, church, we don't need a ministry program for that. We don't need a, a specific ministry for that. You can do this. We can all do this on our own. And let me just reemphasize the need and the value of community, of joining a small group this semester, right? That's the value. When you know people and people know you, you can invest, you can take care of one another. We have people in our lives, we have people like the Stilsons and, and the Arnolds and the Nayerts and, and, and others in, uh, in our church who will drop, literally drop us stuff off on our porch. If they find out we are sick, we'll get stuff like gift cards or chicken noodle soup has appeared on my porch at one time or another. Other good things. And we've done the same thing with other people in our church. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Amen? We're supposed to take care of one another. And this is the value of being in community. You can't do it with everyone because now we're at a size where you're not going to know everyone at our church. But you should know a few people and you should know a few people well. And the way that you do that is through serving or through joining one of our small groups. Now, let's move on to our second story that Luke shows us this morning. As stated earlier, it's very similar, but it has a very different outcome. And let me just say to you this morning, if you've never read this story, um, this story might shock you. For some of you, um, it potentially can even offend you. But hold on with me, because there is so much that we can learn about the character of God and his love for the church 
in this story. This is in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's go there and let's dive in right now. Now, a man, or actually in the ESV, it says, but. And the reason why it begins with but is because it was meant to show a contrast against the story we just read. Now, a man, or but a, name, but a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Okay, so they also sold some property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But the rest, uh, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, now, how does Peter know this? It's obviously he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. How about that for a church service? And great fear seized all who, he, who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, Wrong! <laughs> How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, let's take a few moments. We've seen two stories here by Luke, right? Back to back, meant to contrast one another. Very similar language, different, very different outcomes. Let's see what God has for us this morning, church. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the lessons that are learned in the early church. God, we thank you for the times where things went amazingly wonderful in the early church. God, we also rejoice in the times in where things went terribly wrong. Because every event, God, is something for us to learn and glean from. Holy Spirit, would you reside and indwell us just like you did in the early church? Would you give us ears to hear and uh, eyes to see and a heart that is softened to the gospel this morning? God, I pray that you might draw men and women to you, God. God, Lord, right now, even in our children's classrooms, God, we're praying that our kids would uh, come to know you and meet you in a powerful way. 
Lord, would you just inhabit the praises of your people and speak to us in a unique and powerful way. God, we fix our eyes, our hearts, affections on you this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of people, or mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, C.S. Lewis' famous classic writing, The Screwtape Letters, you may have heard of it, was first published in 1942. It's been around for a while, actually. And it takes the form of a series of letters written by a senior demon known as Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. Now, the uncle mentors his nephew in securing the damnation of a man that they simply call the patient. Now, I read this book many years ago, and like many of C.S. Lewis's books, they can be just a bit difficult to understand, but the book is so fascinating because it portrays a typical human life with all of the temptations and failings, but only at a demon's perspective or from a demon's perspective. I was reminded of a quote from this book, from another book that I've been recently reading. But notice what Lewis writes in the screw tape letters. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Lewis is trying to tell us that when it comes to the devil or Satan, there's two sort of errors that we make. One is that we make much. There's too much of this unhealthy emphasis on Satan. And the other error is, is that we just completely ignore him. Now, in the West, I don't think that our problem, I don't think that our problem is an unhealthy interest in the devil, right? Not, not at least here in the West. Rather, I think most of us, most Westerners simply ignore him and are completely oblivious to his daily schemes against us. Think of this. Even popular culture portrays the devil as a cartoon character. We've, we've all seen the devil as this little cute cartoon character, you know, in the red suit with the little horns and the pitchfork, right? Take Homer Simpson. You can put that picture up, for example. Trying to make a decision and having to choose between an angel on one side and a devil on the other. And you've seen these different kinds of cartoons where normally the character sort of snuffs out the angel and ends up doing the bidding of Satan or one of his demons. Hard to take the devil seriously if we only see him as, as a cartoon character. In 2009... In a Barner research survey of over 1,800 self-described Christians, four out of 10, or 40% of those surveyed, agreed strongly with this statement. Listen to this. Satan is not a living being, 
but only a symbol of evil. 40% of self-described Christians believe that statement. It seems as if our modern sort of post-enlightenment culture really, truly diminishes the supernatural and downplays the devil. Listen to this. If the devil himself can just get us to, to not take him seriously, to not believe that he exists or that he's merely this figment of our imagination, then I suppose the devil can run havoc on our lives. But for Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the devil is not a myth. The devil is not a figment of our overactive imagination. The devil is not simply the byproduct of superstition. No, no, no. The devil is very real, and his end goal is to spread death and destruction. His means? Lies and deception. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies, of all lies. He calls him a murderer from the very beginning. Although he's a defeated enemy, Peter says this. Peter says he's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And here we see him at work in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And even more pressing than that, here we see the devil at work inside of the church. Satan has infiltrated the church. Now, hear me out here. Maybe you would think that the work of Satan or the, or the work of the devil in the church might look like, you know, like the occult or like an exorcism or, 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 or like, you know, like a demon. Now, certainly that, that can happen. That can be the case in some circumstances. But I think this, I think Satan's work is much, more, is much more subtle than that. Its roots are found in lying and in the love of money. So listen to this. Because God does some math in Acts. I discovered this. In Acts chapter 2, God adds to the church. He does addition. In Acts chapter 6, you can actually read a line where it says, Luke says that God multiplied the disciples. So there's, there's addition, there's multiplication, and here in Acts chapter 5, God is about to subtract. He subtracts from the church. Ananias has sold a piece of property, and with, with his wife's full knowledge, he holds back some of the money. Now, this is kind of interesting because what, I mean, why didn't, why didn't Sapphira say anything about it? I mean, maybe she did, but the text doesn't tell us. You would think that she would say, you know, hey, honey, like, why don't you just tell Peter you're not going to give all of it? I mean, it's not a big deal, right? Just say you're, you're behind on the Netflix, you know, subscription. You want to renew it, and we need gas in the car right now, and uh, cable bill is a bit late, so just tell him, you know, we can't give all of it, but next month we'll hopefully be able to sell a different, you know, piece of property, and we can make up for it. She doesn't do that, or, 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 or if she does, he totally ignores it. Peter, he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even need to know. 
He doesn't even need to have Ananias say a thing because he already knows what he's done. He calls him out on the floor on this. And I love this because he's actually saying, listen, Ananias, you already know there was no obligation to sell the property. You, should, you, you knew this. There was no obligation. You were under no obligation to give all the money to the church. Like, why lie? Why bother lying? You didn't, you didn't have to do any of that. You could have just told me the truth. And I want you to notice, church, that the sin is actually not withholding the money. The sin is that he lied about it. It was deceptive. He was trying to appear to be someone who he was not. In that moment, listen, Ananias falls over and dies. How so? Did he have a heart attack? Was it from shock? We don't know, right? We don't actually know. But what is implied in the text is divine judgment. Wouldn't that be crazy if that would happen today, like in the middle of me preaching, right? Or we're like worshiping Adam's like, hey, let's sing this song. And just like, poof, people, poof, oh, another one, poof, oh, ooh, right? And all, you know, it's like, wow, aren't you glad God doesn't deal with us in that way today? Oh, man, this morning he just looked at this. Ooh, poof. Oh, he's cheating on his wife. Poof. Oh, she's lying. Poof. Oh, she hasn't given a tithe in eight months. Poof. Right? God dealing harshly with his church. You should thank God he doesn't do this very often anymore, at least not in the Western context as we know it. Ananias' wife, she comes in, right? She doesn't know what has happened to her husband. And she fails the test. Peter says, hey, is this, is this what you sold the property for? She's like, yeah, that's, that's it. He's like, eh, try again. Boom, she's gone. And it's like a scene from a movie. Here come the guys walking in. They're just like, wrap her up. Let's bring her out, boys. Another one bites the dust, right? <laughs> what are we to make of this story, though? I mean, it's found in the New Testament, right? Some of you might think, well, God doesn't do that. He's a God of love, and he just loves everybody. He's like a big teddy bear in the New Testament. Oh, he just loves you, right? But this is found in the New Testament. Does this stuff really happen? Would God really do such a thing? Clearly, he does, right? I think that we should note this, though. We should note this, that this is a unique time in salvation history, meaning that this was... The early church, that God was just getting started with the church. And God was fierce about protecting the purity of his church. And I want to make three observations today about this story, about Ananias and Sapphira. And I think all of these points will hit home to many of us or to most of us today. If I can be honest, all of them hit home to me. The first observation I want to make of our story is this, is that the love of money is in direct competition with love for God. Love for money is in direct competition for love for God. We see this in verse number two, that Ananias held back some of the money. Look at that with me. It says this, with his wife's full knowledge, in other words, Sapphira she should have said something, she could have said something, but apparently she didn't. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' 
feet. Now, let me say this one more time as a reminder. Remember, this is not communism. This is not socialism. This was not a government mandate. Peter was not for, no one had, no one in the early church was forced to sell their possessions. Remember, they had, or they were one heart and one mind. When you, listen, this is the way it should be in the church today. We should love our brothers and sisters. We should take care of one another, right? And this, listen, no one was under the obligation to give any money or, or to sell a certain piece of property. Why bother lying? Judas was another one in the, in the New Testament. He, too, was also taken captive by money, and he sold our Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. The number one thing that competes for the, the affections of our hearts, listen to is money. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6:24, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. It's impossible. You will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here's the thing about money, right? Well, most of us like it. We we like it when we have a lot of it. We don't like it when we don't when we barely have enough of it, right? But money makes us promises that it cannot keep. Money promises to take care of us, but only God can actually meet all of our needs. Money promises to make us happy, but only leaves us wanting more. Money promises certainty, but guess what? Only God knows the future. The reason why Ananias and Sapphira couldn't give all of the money is because they were not free from the love of money And you and I, we're unable to be generous until we're free of the love of money. I'll say it this way. It's okay to have money, but it's not okay for money to have you, right? It's okay to have money, but it's not okay for money to have you. How do you know? How do you know if it's, how do you know if money has you? Well, if you're never able to part with your money, if you're never able to be generous with your money, and and I don't care what that is, if that means the church, if that means other people, if that means other uh, family members that need it maybe, if that means someone who's in need, whatever that is, if you're never able to part with your money, if you're trying to give and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. How do I do right? It could mean that money has you. And until you're free of the love of money, you'll never be able to be generous. So we see here from this story that love of money is in direct competition with love for God. We also see this, that God has little tolerance for religious hypocrisy. God has little tolerance for religious hypocrisy. The great Scottish author and poet George MacDonald, he once said this, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. <laughs> religious hypocrisy. This simply means in the Greek literally wearing a mask or playing the part of an actor, pretending to be someone who you are not, wearing a mask. Now, let me say this. Failure to reach your ideals or, or failure to, to live out exactly everything that you believe is not hypocrisy because no one lives out their faith completely perfectly. None of us do that, right? Let me say this, though. 
Hypocrisy rather is this, deliberate deception, trying to make people think you are more spiritual than you really are. I don't know about you, but I feel like, I feel like all of us have this tendency to look more holy than we really are. Is that, I mean, am I the only one who senses that? There's something within all of us that we want to look like we're better off than we actually are. Hey, when's the last time you prayed? Well, you know, I, have a, I pray every single day for an hour. No one, wants to, no one wants to answer. Well, I haven't prayed in like three weeks probably, and I only pray when stuff gets really bad in my family. No one wants to answer that way. We'd rather justify or come up with maybe a more pious answer. Well, you know, you know here's the thing, Pastor Marco. I like to have um, just ongoing communication with the Lord. Okay, yeah, which is, that's good, and you should do those things, right? But maybe you're just trying to hide an answer that you really don't pray at all. There's this dark shadow, this, this dark side of, of all of us that we'd rather put on a mask than tell people the truth. And here's what we learn from the New Testament. In the New Testament, every time someone approaches Jesus and they just come at Jesus with humility, with acknowledgement of their sin every single time. Jesus meets that individual with grace, with mercy, and with forgiveness. But every time Jesus, listen, encounters someone who's a religious hypocrite, it's the severest or the harshest judgment on him or from him. Here's what it says in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you what? Hypocrites, you play actors, you those of you who wear a mask. You are like whitewashed tombs. These are not very nice words by Jesus, right? Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. If you read the rest of Matthew 23, that first line, woe to you teachers and hypocrites, is actually repeated throughout the entire chapter. Jesus' strictest judgment was reserved for those religious rulers who were only pretending to be holy on the outside, but on the inside they were cold. Their hearts were cold towards God. They had no real love for God on the inside. Jesus has almost no Tolerance for those who are just playing religious games, right? We should pay attention to that. They not only loved money, Ananias and Sapphira, but they loved the praise of men, and those two almost always go together. And so we see God has very little tolerance for religious hypocrisy. And then finally, we see this, number three, the Lord or testing the Lord results in judgment. Testing the Lord results in justice, in judgment. Another way we could say this is that they did not take the presence of God seriously. Perhaps they thought the Holy Spirit was real, but in the end they thought, you know what, no matter what we do, no, no matter um, how bad we get, no matter what behavior, you know what, God's always going to meet us with grace. 
God is, it's okay. Hey, it's okay if we withhold the money. Hey, it's okay if we lie. Hey, it's okay if we don't live for God. Hey, it's not a big deal. Like, we'll just go to church. You know what I'm saying? We'll smile. We'll lift a hand or two to make the worship leader happy. It's not a big deal. Like, God's, God's always going to meet us with grace. You know, he's a big teddy bear in the sky. And Well, here's the thing. That's not what happened on this occasion. Right? Notice what Peter said to Sapphira in verse number 9. He says, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? In other words, Peter says, like, is Peter is saying, listen, how could you try to see how much you could get away with? That's not the way you treat God. You don't treat God by saying, let me just see what, what all bad I can do or all the evil I can do. Let me just see how close I can get to the line before God actually does something. Peter's like, that's not how you approach God. Sapphira, how could you do that? Think about this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when he's confronting the devil, we've looked at the story before. He says this, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is an exact quote from where? From Deuteronomy chapter 6, because this is what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. They put God to the test. And what did they receive? Judgment. Judgment. And so Jesus says to Satan, don't put God to the test. Peter says to Sapphira, how could you conspire to test that? No. What did you expect? What did you expect? What do you expect, right? And of course, she receives the strictest of judgment. And so here, Ananias and Sapphira, what? do the opposite of what Jesus has commanded them not to do. And the result is divine judgment. Divine judgment. These are very sobering lessons that we learn from the text this morning. And I think that's the purpose, though. I believe that's the purpose. We're almost done, though. I've got a few more things I want to highlight here. How does Luke finish up each section both after Ananias dies and after Sapphira dies. I want us to go back in the text and look because something is important that Luke actually mentions. Look at verse number five. It'll be on the screen for you. It says this, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And notice what we have underlined, in great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear. What happens when Sapphira dies? Let's look at that. Verse number 11 says this. Great fear. Same, same phrase. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Very similar language. What's the common factor? Fear of the Lord, fearing God. What is that? That means awe. That means reverence. That means a holy respect for God. Seized who? Scripture says this, the church, the church. You know what? Something fascinating I discovered that right there here in Acts chapter 4, this is the first time that Luke uses the word church or ecclesia or the gathering or the congregation or the assembly. Luke is trying to make a point. 
Let me point one more thing out to you on the same note. It's Acts 4.33. It'll be on the screen for you. It says this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. And God's grace was what? Powerfully at work in all of them or in them all. Here's what I want you to see as we close this morning, church. In the early church, listen, the early church was marked by great power, by great grace, and by great fear. And may it be said of us as well. May Radiant Church be marked by great power that when people walk through the doors of their church that they would have a powerful encounter with the living God that would leave them radically different than when they came through those doors that when they leave they would be transformed and changed because they had a powerful encounter with Jesus himself may there be in Radiant Church great grace. May we, may we be a church marked by great grace. Listen, that the sinner walks through the door and is reconciled with God no matter what they did the night before, no matter what they did the last 20 years, that the sinner finds a home. The sinner finds his way home. The prodigal returns to home. Why? Because of great grace. The great grace that was won for us on the cross a Calvary by our Lord and Savior. Great power, great grace, and may it be said of Radiant Church that our church would be marked by what? By great fear. Great fear. That we might reverence the Lord. That we might respect the Lord. That we might not test Him to see how far that we can get, but we might ourselves live holy lives, that we ourselves might come under the submission and the, and the lordship of Jesus Christ, not to test him, not to see how far we can get, but to live a life that glorifies and honors him. I'm convinced that Luke is trying to show us that this is what marks the early church, and I think the Spirit of God says, this is what I want to mark the church today. Great power, great grace, and great fear. Let it be said of us. Let's pray. God, we love you. And although this is a difficult story, God, rather than try to explain it away, Lord, we embrace it, God. We embrace it. It's your word. We can't change your word, God. We have no liberty to change your word. God, rather we submit to you. Lord, rather we come under its authority and we recognize its power. God, we recognize what you were doing in that moment, preserving, protecting the purity of the church. And we recognize, God, that you love your church so much. You're so fierce for your church, God, that you want to protect its purity today, God. And Lord, may it be said of us as well, God, that we would be a church, Lord, God, a great power, the power of the Holy Spirit. God, that those among us would experience you in a powerful way, in a life-transforming, life-changing way. God, I pray for great grace in our gatherings, God. Great grace to fall on us, God. That the grace of God, Lord, that, that, 
removes all blemishes, removes all sin, God, would reconcile sinners today in that moment, God, that no matter where we're at, we know that we can always turn to you in repentance and you'll be there with arms wide open, God. And finally, God, may it be so that we are a church, God, with great fear, great fear of you, God, a people who fear you and revere you, God, who do not try to test you, but rather, God, again, live holy lives pleasing to you, God, empowered by your spirit to do so, God. Thank you that grace empowers us to choose godliness, God. And so may it be said of us, God, great power, great grace, and great fear, God. And with those three things, God, may we see your kingdom come here in Bay City as it is in heaven, God. So, Lord, fill us again, we pray by your spirit, God. Renew us, God. Fall afresh on this place, God. God, and would you stir up in our hearts a fresh fear of who you are. You are holy. You are awesome, God. You are amazing, God. God, and we fall on our face, God, in reverence to who you are. We thank you for that today, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.